Let's get right into our study. I'd like to, for you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10 as we continue on in our study of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10. Now, the last few weeks, we spent about five weeks, I believe, in Daniel chapter 9, dealing with the prophecies of the 70 weeks which are yet to come, the 70 weeks of years, which, as we studied it uh, very carefully, uh, translated to the 490 years, <coughs> excuse me, that, um, that Israel and the nation of Israel will go through their time of, of chastisement, their time of being dealt with by the Lord uh, for their neglect of the land, for 70 uh, Sabbaths uh, or Sabbath years that the land was supposed to rest. They didn't rest those 70 uh, years. In other words, every seven years they were to rest the land, and they didn't do it. And so the Lord said, well, you're going to have to go through this, this time of correction and this time of, in essence, punishment, you know, for that. And the children of Israel have been going through that now for a certain amount of time. But as we learned last time, there was 483 years that had already been accounted for, and what is left is seven years. So we dealt with the 69 weeks of years in history, and what's left is the seven years that are uh, equated to the seven years of tribulation that are yet uh, to be um, fulfilled, which is yet future and still not that far away from our time today. It could happen, really, at any moment. And uh, so we've, we've spent a lot of time dealing with that and dealing with the fact that we're not looking at anything in the book of Daniel, especially in these chapters, these last four chapters of the book. We're not dealing with anything that pertains directly to the church of Jesus Christ. As we said in our study of, of Daniel chapter 9, God was speaking to Daniel about these prophecies to deal with his people and his city, which is, of course, Jerusalem. So I'll talk a little bit more about that as we get into Daniel chapter 10. Let's look at the first three verses of this chapter. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. That was the name given to him actually by Nebuchadnezzar or back in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. Now, understanding the time appointed that was long, and now you'll see what that means in just a moment, but you'll see what it does to him because in verse 2 it says, In those days I, Daniel was mourning three full weeks. By the way, that's weeks of days, so that's regular weeks, a regular seven-day week of days. In those days, I, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread. In other words, he was fasting. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now this chapter, chapter 10, marks the last of the four visions that were given to Daniel by the Lord. Visions that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel. 
And this last vision will actually cover the last three chapters. So the vision itself does not only pertain to chapter 10, but chapters 10, 11, and 12. Uh, And it covers a time frame from Cyrus, of course, because he's the king that's mentioned, the king of Persia, from Cyrus through the second coming of Christ. Which, by the way, means all the way to the end of that seven-year period called the Great Tribulation, or the Tribulation period. So that's a long time that uh, is going to be covered in these three particular chapters. Now, the vision is the most detailed of all the prophecies given in the book of Daniel. Now, we've seen a lot of details in the, in the prophecies that have been given by Daniel, but more details are actually going to be found in these last three chapters, in particular chapters 11 and 12. And it is significant to note that here, as elsewhere in the prophetic scriptures, it is distinctively Daniel's people, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, who are at the center of the prophecy. And this is important because we will find nothing here nor anywhere else in the Hebrew prophetic scriptures about the church in the present time or in the present dispensation. And this is, this is highly important for us to understand because the many prophetic interpreters who have removed Israel from the prophetic picture and added the church in its place have caused so much confusion in the interpretation of prophecy. God is very clear. When he says to Daniel, uh, this prophecy about, is about your people, then that's what it's about. His people speaking of Israel. When he says, and the holy city, he's of course speaking of El Paso, right? Or you know, Washington, D.C.? No. He's speaking of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This is all what this prophecy is about. And then when you put this together with all the prophecies of the Old Testament, as well as with the book of Revelation, there is continually prophetic consistency. We see in the book of Revelation how many times we are told about the children of Israel, about Israel itself, the enemies of Israel, the things that are happening in Israel, the things that are happening about the temple, a temple that's going to be built again, and so on and so forth. So we have to realize the importance of consistency in understanding Scripture. Now, chapters 10 through 12 can be broken down as follows. And I'll give this kind of quickly if you can write quickly, but I'll also not rush too much. But from Daniel chapter 10 through it, all the way to Daniel 11, verse 1. So it's a whole chapter plus one verse. Daniel 10 through Daniel chapter 11, verse 1. We're actually given the introduction to the vision. So that's partly what we're doing tonight, is dealing with the introduction to the vision. What we get now is a behind-the-scenes look at spiritual warfare. That begins in this chapter. A behind-the-scenes look at spiritual warfare. And then in Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, all the way through Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, we are shown two major divisions. Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 35, deals with the immediate future from the time of Cyrus through the Persian Empire and into the Grecian Empire to Antiochus. And then from Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, to Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, we see Daniel being informed of the distant future. The latter days, in other words. And that is critical because we'll see that mentioned even in our text tonight about 
the latter days. This is the time period of the Great Tribulation period up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now within that time, there's also the rapture of the church, but we're not focused on that. We've, we've seen a lot of that focus in other books, especially in our study of the book of Revelation, as well as in First and Second Thessalonians and other places. And then from Daniel chapter 12, 5 through 13, we see the final message of comfort to Daniel, the judgment of the nations, and on into the establishing of the millennial reign of Christ, when Christ enters into the city of Jerusalem and establishes himself on the throne of David. Now, as we begin in chapter 10, Daniel, at this point in time, was around 90 years old. And as we see in verse 1, the message, or this message, was given to him in the third year of the reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and that was in 536 B.C. So this gives us a historical time frame, 536 B.C. Now the message came about two years after Daniel chapter 9, where we found Daniel praying for the Jewish people and for the city of Jerusalem, knowing that the time of their captivity was about over. Now as we read over these verses in English, the ones that we just read in verses 1 through 3, we don't really get why Daniel was so impacted by it and the reason for his mourning. In other words, we read, we read verse 1, you know, that, that talks about uh, a thing that was revealed unto Daniel, and the thing was true, and the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. He understood these things, but uh, then he, it says that he mourned for three weeks. So in English, it's really hard to understand what, he, what, what all that's about. But the phrase, if you'll notice in your scriptures, back in verse 1, but the appointed time was long. But the appointed time was long. In the, in the Hebrew, that's just two words. It's sabah gadol. Sabah gadol. Which carries with it the idea of great warfare. It carries the idea of great warfare. And it implies that the period that is in view here speaks of a long and strenuous time which will involve great conflict and trouble for the people of God. So he knew the thing and he knew and understood the vision. That when he's told about this appointed time that was long, he was, it, it's a, an appointed time of great trouble. Now, we've seen things throughout the Scriptures, especially in the book of Jeremiah and Isaiah, uh, phrases like uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, so on and so forth. Well, this is the same time frame, or at least it's the same kind of trouble that they were talking about. And it was being, it was being directed toward Israel and the people of Israel. So now we know why, then, that Daniel was mourning. Because trouble was coming upon the nation of Israel. Now again, in chapter 9, we saw Daniel praying. We saw Daniel praying for the return of his people to Israel. And, and in the same year, he lifted up his prayer. That very same year where we saw him praying in Daniel chapter 9, which was two years earlier. In that same year, Cyrus issued a decree. Which allowed the Jewish people to return home. 
Now think about that. See, we're, we're, we're tying together some loose ends here. If we turn to Ezra chapter 1, Ezra is the, uh, is the writer here of this letter that deals with the, this particular return. So all you have to do is look at the first four verses of Ezra chapter 1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, two years before this next prayer in chapter 10, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, which was, you know, Cyrus actually fulfilling Scripture because of the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now you've got to remember, Cyrus was a, was a heathen king. Nonetheless, God can deal with any king because he's the true sovereign, not, not, not the earthly kings. Whatever kings are in place, God has allowed these things to happen. But nonetheless, it says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then in verse 3 it says, Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts besides the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now we can spend a lot of time on that, but then we might as well go ahead and study Ezra at the same time. So this is just combining the, the verses to show the time frames that things were taking place. This was the very same time that Daniel knew that Israel was about to be let go of that 70-year uh, period of time that they were to be in, in, in exile. And that's the same year that God answers that prayer and Cyrus issues that decree. But what took place? Okay, so all the, the, the prayer was, 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 was answered and, and all, but what took place? was that only 49,897 people returned home under the, leader, under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. Now I mentioned that, I, I mentioned this number, it's a very exact number, 49,897, because when you add up in, in the book of Ezra and, and elsewhere, the numbers of the people that were in Babylon or in Persia at the time, I should say, uh, they, they talked about certain groups, and when you, when you add all the numbers together, this is the exact number of those that returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel. That is, 49,897 people out of the 2 to 3 million Jews who were living in Babylon at the time. Now, when, 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 the, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they all came out, led by Moses. Because they were under harsh, harsh servitude. They, they, I mean, they, they were slaves. I mean, it was, you know, let my people free and let my people go. And, they, and you know, he had to, you know, Pharaoh had to do it because God was behind them and encouraging uh, in a very strong way that Pharaoh let his people go. But in Babylon it was a little bit different. 
many of them got com- comfortable there. They actually were given the opportunity to make money and have businesses and be uh, kind of looked up to in, 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 at least in commerce uh, with everyone there. They felt comfortable. That's not all of them, but, but many of them did. So when you think about that, and Daniel praying in Daniel chapter 10, this had to also have weighed heavy on the heart of Daniel, not to mention a big disappointment to him to only see a handful of people go back home. In fact, it was so disturbing to Daniel that he fasted and mourned for three full weeks or 21 days. And we're told that Daniel just ate what was necessary to stay alive and thus avoided all the fancy foods of, 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 of uh, Persia. Neither did he take in meat or wine during this time. He refrained actually from using skin oils that were used to protect one's skin from the sun. That's when, when it says that he didn't anoint himself. He didn't put any oils on himself to protect his skin, along with any fragrances to the body. He didn't do any of that. And just in case, and just in case... Anyone would doubt that this was the same Daniel that was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He gave his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. That's why it's mentioned there. It's to say this is that same Daniel. Because down through the ages, people have said, well, Daniel couldn't have written the the book of Daniel. I mean, he talks about nations that came much, much later. Of course, he was a prophet. (laughs) You have to believe that God gave him that wisdom to be able to do that. But in fact, the greatest testimony of Daniel being Daniel was what Jesus said when he quoted from the book of Daniel and said, as the prophet Daniel has written about the abomination of desolation. So who are you going to believe? I think I'd like to believe Jesus. And I'd like to believe Daniel because Daniel says, it's me. I'm the same guy that was called Belteshazzar a long time ago. So he makes that clear there. Let's go on now in verses 4 through 6. And it says, And in the 4 and 20th day, or the 24th day of the first month, so within the 24 days, what do we have? 21 days. The 21 days in which he had prayed and fasted. As I was by the side of the great river, which is Hidekel, which is actually the Tigris River, uh, then I lifted up mine eyes and I looked, or, and, looked and, and behold a certain man clothed in linen. A certain man, the word certain there is the word echad, which means one. One man. And behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of ufaz. His body was also like the barrel, a stone, a bright, bright stone. And his face was, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. And Daniel noted in this passage the time that his great testing ended. The 21 days were over. That was a time of great testing for Daniel. His fast had spanned both 
And by the way, his fast, uh, this is another time frame that is given to us by the statement he made. But his, his fast had spanned both, listen, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Because both of them were in the first month, which is Nisan, the month of Nisan. So that's an indication for us to understand why he mentions that. Because the two feasts, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, were designed to remind Israel of their bondage in Egypt and their marvelous deliverance. Events that should have had a renewed significance to all devout Jews in light of their allowance to return to the land by Cyrus's decree. We should be excited that we have this opportunity now to all go home. And those two feasts were significant in that time frame. Next, Daniel received a divine visitation, as we see here in this passage. While he was on the banks of this Tigris River, the Hidekel. And it certainly raises the question, who was this certain man? Who was this certain man? I find it interesting again that the word echad is used for certain man. Because it's, uh, it reminds us of the Shema. The Shema Israel. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echod, Echod. The, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And yet we know that that one God is in three persons. Because the word Echad for one means composite unity. A composite unity. And so that's kind of giving us a clue, a little indication of who this may be. Because many people have wondered, is this, is this really Jesus then? Appearing before uh, his, his birth. Because there were appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. In fact, we call those appearances Christophanies or Theophanies. Those are just the uh, theological terms for it. But it, what it means is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Was this the Lord of glory, the second person of the Godhead, the one described in Revelation chapter 1 as the Son of Man? Well, let's compare it. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 through 15 and compare the visions. Time and time again, if you've been paying attention through our study in the book of Daniel, you realize that I've mentioned how close Daniel is related to the book of Revelation. How Daniel himself is related very similarly to the person of John who wrote the Revelation as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it. And of course, God uh, used him in that. Here it says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. And we see that the Ancient of Days is also called the Son of Man, or at least there's reference to the Ancient of Days as well as the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. We've already touched upon that in earlier chapters. But here it says, One like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot. So that wasn't one of the shorter uh, gowns that they used to wear. This was one that went down to the feet. Uh, and girt about the paps uh, with a golden girdle. So that just meant that it was, it was uh, well... Um, 
uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the belt, in other words, uh, held it all well together. And his head and his hair were, li- were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And I remember this is Revelation, but we're just reading basically the same thing in, in, in Daniel. Head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, the color of brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as a sound of many waters, and Daniel the voice of a multitude. Certain, uh, certainly on various occasions in the scriptures, we have seen, as we said, pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. And uh, we're not going to go into any great detail on that. You know, there's, I mean, it's... We, we see it all the way from Genesis to, to, uh, to uh, Malachi uh, in many cases. Uh, but we can, what we can take note of in, in identifying this certain man, for example, is that his garment was not, as I said, a short tunic, but, uh, would have been, which was worn by the common people, but a long garment. And that long garment was to give note that it was a priestly garment. The long garments gave indication that it was a priestly garment. The gold belt speaks of his kingship and his sovereignty. His body was like a transparent jewel. It says a barrel, but a transparent jewel which speaks of his glory. His eyes were like lightning which can see through any of us because nothing is hidden from God. And his arms and his feet are brass describing his righteous judgment. And his voice thunders loud and strong. And so now Daniel receives this particular vision, of course, thousands of years before John does. I say thousands, I should say hundreds of years before John does. Not thousands, hundreds. But then as we read on in verses 7 through 9, it says, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. And therefore I was left alone. And saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. And yet I heard the voice of his words. And when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And we can compare this to those experiences of John even, when in the presence of the Lord falling on his face. And how many others? that would fall in the presence of the glory of the Lord. Think of the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and uh, how he had given uh, Peter, James, and John the, the, the privilege of going with him, but to see him in his glory, uh, it, couldn't be, it, it, it couldn't really be beheld properly. Uh, what could you do, you know? Moses uh, on the Mount of uh, uh, the Mount Sinai, the Mount of the Law, and, and receiving the Law. Certainly receiving some of the the, uh, the glory of the Lord on him, but uh, because he was who he was, it faded upon him. So uh, these are just uh, things to remind us of how God, when, when making great statements concerning the future of his people, uh, really does things that get our attention and should get our attention. So during this visitation, as we read, some other men were there with Daniel. We don't know who they were. But they didn't see the vision of this certain man, and yet they sensed something was going on that scared them so much that they fled away and they hid themselves. 
Similar to the friends of Saul of Tarsus. You remember Saul of Tarsus when he had his encounter with, with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, a little different in the very fact that the, the, they, you know, the people uh, that were with him could, could see the light, but uh, you know, they, uh, they couldn't hear what was being said. But I find it interesting that uh, still to this day people are that way. If we ourselves are filled with the Spirit of God and, and being in a position to, to share the love of God or the love of Christ or to pro- proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, some people just get, get scared and they hide. <laughs> and they run and, and they find themselves trying to get away from all of that. You know, they try to hide themselves from the Lord. The only thing is they can't. I think some of us in, in this room, maybe when we put all the congregation of our, of our church together, we would, we would find that there were many people that initially when people were telling them about Jesus Christ, they were running all over the place, running, trying to hide. But they, you can't hide from the Lord when He's after you. And when He gets you, after He gets you, you don't want to hide anymore. You're really glad that He got you. But this was very significant here that Daniel was left alone with, with the Lord and his strength left him as he, as he fell into this, this posture of weakness. Because that's what we're told. He fell, fell into this posture of, of weakness. He even says his vigor, which was his comeliness, his, his vigor was turned into frailty, which, which, which turned into corruption. And this is what happens when sinful men have an encounter with a living and true God. That really happens. Maybe, maybe not as dramatically as we see it happening with Daniel or with Paul or with others, but it happens. Consider, if you will, Isaiah. If you remember Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 5, where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. In other words, the train of His, of his glory filled the temple. Isaiah was caught up in a vision of the temple of God. And above it, it says, stood the seraphims, the, the angels. Very specific kind of angel seraphims. Each one had six wings with twain, or with two he covered his face, and with twain he, or two he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And again, Isaiah is seeing this and hearing this. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord isn't just holy. The Lord is not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Many times we've talked about the repetition of words in the Scriptures. You know, if, if Jesus says something once, it's really important, isn't it? Anything that Jesus says is always important. When Jesus would say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, saying something twice, says, I need your attention here. I want your attention. But when anything is said three times, it is of utmost importance. And to say that God is holy, 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 then how we treat that, how we treat Him with our lives, 
and our presence before Him is significant. Listen to what Isaiah goes on to say, And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me. Stop for just a moment and think about this. Isaiah said, Woe is me. Oy, oy, they. <laughs> you know, sometimes we hear that. We say, well, that's Yiddish, you know, whatever. This, this was a deep oy from Isaiah. Woe is me. For I am undone. Isaiah said, in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God, the word undone literally means to be disintegrated. Disintegrated as if in the smallest of particles you've just been totally wiped out. You know the word integrity? Integration? in the sense of being integrated, literally means to be held together, to hold something together. Disintegration. To be disintegrated means to be blown up into all kinds of pieces. And that's what Isaiah was saying about his presence, or his presence before the holy, holy, holy God. Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The experience of being before a holy God is serious. It's that serious. When God takes us alone, for a season or for a time or for a moment for us to pay attention to what He has to say to us. I don't know and I don't think that many people in the church today understand this. I'm not trying to be speculative or, you know, or, or judgmental. What I'm saying is that when we when we see what we see in the church today, with people going off in all kinds of different directions, not wanting to stand on the Word of God any longer, accepting the, the, you know, the, the things of the world as, as being more important than the things of God, falling into the traps of political correctness and tolerance be, you know, at, the, at the expense of the truth and the doctrines of the, of the, of the Word of God. We're, we're in trouble. Because we're saying that God is not holy, holy, holy anymore. And His Word is not holy anymore. And His Word is not, is not functionable anymore in the 21st century. But we know that God never changes. And we know that God is holy, 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 and He will always be. 
And His Word, the Scripture says, you know, the earth will pass away, but His Word will never pass away. What an experience that must have been for Isaiah. And all of that for God to prepare him to be the prophet that he was. To touch his lips with a coal. To set it on fire. And to purify it. For the sake of proclaiming the Word of God. Proclaiming the prophecies that Israel needed to hear. History and tradition teaches us that the children of Israel did not listen and eventually by his own people was he sawed in two. The very same one who was present with the Lord was not listened to. What does that say about the times in which we live? What does it say about Daniel? Because going back to Daniel, we need to because of time, but for Daniel, for Daniel, this encounter with God drained him. It drained him physically. It drained him emotionally. It drained him spiritually. But now, as we move on into verse 10, we see another being come come alongside of Daniel to assist him and to strengthen him. This is one reason why I believe that this, this person that we see in verses 7 through 9 is, is, is really the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people say, well, it's probably Gabriel. It's probably an angel. Well, no. There's no angel that looks... Well, we've made the comparison with Revelation. There's no angel that looks like, like Jesus. But then verse 10 here describes something else, and we need to look at it. It says in verse 10, And behold, a hand touched me. Now, some people believe that was the Lord's hand, but, but as you read in context, it was the angel. It says, Behold, a hand touched me, which, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. In other words, it brought me back to an awakening, and I, and I sat up. In other words, is what uh, Daniel is saying. And he said unto me, O Daniel, o, a man greatly beloved. And so the words of this new person, or this new being, which actually could actually be Gabriel. You know, we've talked about Gabriel already as, 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 as the angel that God uses, the messenger, to bring the visions to Daniel. So here again, we, we may think that, we may believe this is, this is Gabriel. It's possible. But he says to him, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved. Now that doesn't sound like words that God himself would say, he could, unless he says, O greatly beloved by me. <laughs> But he says, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright. And upon thy standing, literally it means, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. This angelic being, as I said, may be Gabriel who wakes Daniel out of the state in which he was in. And he tells the prophet that he doesn't have to fear because he is greatly loved by God. <clears throat> Those indeed are comforting words. Isn't it? I mean, it's comforting to know you're a greatly beloved person by God. God loves you. But understand this. If I can encourage you by telling you that God loves you, what is your reaction to that? 
Sometimes our reaction may be, wow, that's great. Oh my goodness, I'm, I didn't think he did, but I'm glad you're telling me this, you know. So there may be that, ap- that, that, that attitude of, of, of relief. Well, God loves me good. That's a good thing. There could be a, 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 an attitude like, uh, like some people. Of course he does. Why wouldn't he love me? Or there is that other reaction. That brings us to our knees in humility. I don't deserve that love. I don't deserve. Lord, you do know who I am. And you love me anyway. But then you go deeper. And Daniel gives us the deeper sense. He stands trembling. He trembles at this word. How how do you feel? And I'm not really trying to deal with feelings, you know, but but how do you feel? When you hear the words of Jesus, because you know that they are words directed to his people. For example, when Jesus says in John 15, verses 14 and 15, he says, You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. That's a very important and significant condition there. He says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Henceforth, he says, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. What will that bring you to? I, 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 can't, I can't understand anybody who would, who would think that's deserving. All I can sense in, in, in hearing those words directed to me is, What? It can't be me. But I've called you friends. You remember the the disciples? I like to call them the disciples because they were disciples before they became apostles. You know, I was a school teacher, so I used to deal with a lot of grades. You know, they live their lives as disciples a lot of times, you know. Peter's taking his foot in his mouth and whatnot. And all everybody, you know, Peter, James, and John, you know, calling down fire from heaven. Come on, Lord, let's kill these people, you know. And then, of course, when they arrest Jesus, where did everybody go? Humbles you. It humbles you. Here's the problem I think that we need to deal with in the church today. We are called the friends of God. We are called the friends of God, but now don't, because of this, don't bring God down to our level. 
Don't bring God down to our level as many people try to do. Because He is holy and He is righteous. He is God. But understand this, what the Lord has done is bring us up to Him. He's brought us up to Him. He's brought us up to Himself. I I mention this sometimes when I describe a little bit closely the the blessing of Numbers chapter 6. The blessing you hear at the end of our services. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. That, that particular phrase in the Hebrew is such a beautiful phrase. It captivated me when I understood what it meant. That God lifts us up like a child and lifts His face at us to look at us in His love. He's lifted us up to Himself. So what must we do? We must honor Him. Do we honor Him? We should. Do we respect Him? We should because that's part of worship. You know, what it means to worship is to respect and to reverence and to kiss toward the Lord in reverence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, we're told in the book of Proverbs. But folks, listen, the fear of the Lord is the reverence and the respect and the honor that is due God from each and every one of us every moment of our lives. Honor Him, respect Him, worship Him, for He alone is worthy. Don't make Him our equal because He isn't. Sometimes some people like to say the man upstairs. He's not a man. He's God. And why do we say upstairs if he said, I'll come down and be with you? What are you, a tri-level? He's with us. He's with us. I will be with you, I will be upon you, and I will be in you through my Spirit. So, we've got to move on. I keep saying that, don't I? I've got to move on. I've got to move on. Now, as comforting as the angel tried to be, nevertheless, Daniel stands there trembling. Now, this scene is for us to understand that even in our greatest benefits which the Lord has provided, we are still to tremble in the presence of an awesome God. We are still to tremble in the presence of an awesome God. Let's begin with Psalm 2 verse 11. It says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear. What is fear again? The reverence and respect that the Lord is due. The awe that we are to show Him. Because He's an awesome God. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Isaiah had to have trembled before the Lord when he saw that vision of God. Woe is me, I'm in Dunwich. What am I doing here? But God made him a servant. God made him a vessel. And as soon as we begin to worship God aright, then He will use you. He wants to use you. And He wants to use you as His hands, as His feet, as His voice to proclaim His message, His word, that He is God and there is no other And there is no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved except in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Philippians chapter 2, listen listen to this. The Apostle Paul understood this. He said, wherefore, uh, Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13, wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, I think obedience is a very big thing in the church today, right? It should be. But how many people are obeying the Lord today? But listen, wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. By the way, what does that mean? Exercise. Some of you guys probably went to the gym today. If you worked out, that means you exercise. Well, we are called to work out or exercise our salvation with what? With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Why? Because we need to be reverent before the Lord in everything that we do for Him because it is God who works in you. He's working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We don't take any credit for the things that we do. They should. Everything that we do is to bring glory and honor to the Lord. Now, ask yourself, are the things that I'm doing bringing glory and honor to the Lord? Because if you're not, then you need to really examine your heart. But... If you're doing things for the Lord, guess what? You're not doing them. The Lord's working it through you. You're the vessel. Now listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Again, Paul says, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. Ah, grace. I love grace. Right? We all love grace. What is grace? Undeserved favor. So let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with what? With reverence and godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. Any reason why we need to respect God? Because He's a consuming fire. So it's wonderful to know Him. It's great to know the Lord. It's how we know the Lord that really matters. How we come to Him, how we respect Him, how we honor Him, and how we honor Him when we go out into the world to be His examples, to be His, the reflections of His glory. Getting back to Daniel, the angel now speaks words of comfort with an explanation. An explanation for the delay in his coming to Daniel. 
Remember, Daniel was 21 days, three weeks praying, and uh, 21 days, uh, not eating good food, uh, you know, not taking baths and cleaning up, uh, you know. Lord, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, 21 days. Well, listen, he says, he said unto me, fear not, Daniel, <clears throat> for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before, the, before thy God, thy words were heard, and I'm come for thy words. In other words, we heard you. We heard you the first day. And I was coming. Heard you the first day. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. The prince of the kingdom of Persia is a demon. Now, I'm going to be speaking about this next week because of time. But I'm going to really deal with this issue of, of, of spiritual warfare in the last days, in the times in which we live, and bringing to bear with the countries and the nations that are today at, at front, front and center in the, in the prophetic uh, landscape of today as we look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those nations is Persia. We know it today as Iran. So you don't want to miss next time. But nonetheless, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. This is the spiritual battle that's taking place when we pray. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, Michael is considered to be the prince over Israel. And we'll talk about that again next week as well. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy Thy people, remember that, underline that, in the latter days. When? Not today. In the latter days. At the end. In those days that we've talked about already, the seven years that are yet to happen. Because those seven years are distinguished as the years that will happen in the latter days. For yet the vision is for many days. The Lord sent this angel from the first day that Daniel began to pray, but the demonic forces kept him from completing his mission for 21 days. In other words, for those three weeks. In fact, it wasn't until Michael came and assisted in this battle that he then was able to complete the mission. Now, I've got a question to ask. What would, what would have happened if Daniel had given up on day 20? So, I mean, is there a good answer to that question? What would have happened if Daniel had given up on day 20? Folks, this should encourage us to keep on praying. Keep on praying, no matter how long we've been at it. God will bring us the answer. As a matter of fact, he heard the, the, he heard the prayer the first day you prayed it. So you could only be a day away from answered prayer. You could only be a day away from answered prayer. What we are seeing here now is the Lord lifting up a curtain, so to speak, to give us a glimpse of the spiritual warfare that is taking place around us even here right now. We can't see it, but it's here. You may not agree with all of his theology, but John Calvin once wrote this. He said, whenever the ungodly cause trouble, they are fighting under the banner of Satan and are his instruments for harassing us. 
Let me say that again. Whenever the ungodly cause trouble, they are fighting under the banner of Satan and are his instruments for harassing us. There are a lot of Christians being harassed today for their faith. Some even being killed for their faith. Some even being martyred for their faith. Today, in this 21st century that we are supposed to have been technologically advanced and medically advanced and and culturally advanced and sociologically advanced. But what's happening? The worst is coming out. And the enemy is at the very core of that hatred, is at the very core of of that violence and terror and awful, uh, just the the wickedness and the evil. So let me add to, to that, that we as Christians, if we are not careful, can also become pawns in the enemy's games. Listen carefully to me, I'm going to close with this, so pay attention. If we are not careful, we can also become pawns of the enemy's games, and so we must be wise of his schemes. We must be wise of his schemes, and we must resist him steadfast in the faith. Resist the enemy steadfast in the faith. Is Pastor Charlie telling you that? No, Peter is. Peter the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said to the church, Be sober, be vigilant. You know, if we're vigilant about things, that means we, you know, we have to rest the body and all of that. But, you know, if we rest, we have to rest with one eye open. We have to kind of be vigilant. Can't go fully asleep on things. Because the enemy never sleeps. Thank God that our God never sleeps either. But God's got us on the battlefield. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And he's telling this to Christians, not not to unbelievers. He's saying this to Christians. And then he says, whom resist steadfast in the faith. In other words, resist him steadfast. In other words, planted, grounded in the faith of Jesus Christ, which means you are planted in the Word of God. And in the Spirit of God, and in the power of God, you need to be resisting Him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We know what's happening in the world today. This is for us today more than it's ever been. Remember what James himself said earlier on, one of the books before First Peter, but, but James in James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You have to resist him. Then he goes on to say, Draw near to God, and he, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen, we walk around thinking that just because we said a prayer uh, to receive Jesus Christ, that we don't ever do anything wrong, or we're, you know, we're never selfish anymore. No! Hey, listen. We have to, on a daily basis, examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith. Why? Because the enemy's out and about trying to devour whoever lets his guard down. Draw near to God, He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Check your hearts out. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. So many people used to have all all kinds of problems. Even um, uh, Martin Luther used to have all kinds of problems with this because he said, well, wait, wait a minute. I mean, you know, this sounds Old Testament. No, it's Old Testament, New Testament. New and improved Testament, whatever. It's just saying every day we've got to check ourselves and, and, and realize 
That we have to have the proper attitude before a holy God. Then he says, humble yourselves. That's the key. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He shall lift you up. How many of us are humbling ourselves in the Lord? We have to humble ourselves. Lastly, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 18. We know this section as the, as the section of Paul's letter that teaches us about the armor of God. I'm just going to read it. This is going to be very significant in our study next week, but let's just read it. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Not strong in yourselves, strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why does he say put on the armor of God? Because he's saying to the church, we are in a battle. We are in a war. We are in a war for truth. We are in a war for souls. And our enemy is powerful. But our God is more powerful. Our God is greater. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Here it is. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. So Christians, let's quit wrestling with flesh and blood. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, we, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God a second time. Remember what we said about repetition. Second time. Take, on, uh, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The word stand appears a few times here. So it's an encouragement for us to be standing in the Lord always. Stand therefore, there it is again, uh, having your loins girt about with truth. In other words, the belt of truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So wherever you go, you have to have the, the, the gospel ready and prepared. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And by the way, of that whole list there given, in verses 17 and 18, There's only two offensive weapons that we have. Only two. The first is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's our weapon. But the second weapon is in verse 18. Pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Well, we'll deal with these issues a little bit more next time. But let me leave you with this thought. Prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. It is getting God's will done on earth. Keep that in mind as you set your hearts in prayer today and until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you and we bless you for this time. We thank you for allowing us the privilege of coming before your throne of grace to obtain your mercies and to find grace for help in our time of need. We ask, Lord God, that you would set us free from those things that bind us to this earth, to this world. And, Lord, that uh, 
at times, Lord, have, have come through the deceptions of the, of the enemy. Lord, set us free from those things. Lord, all of us need to humble ourselves. We, we, there's none of us, Lord God, better than anyone else in this room. We all need to humble ourselves before you. We all need to give you thanks and praise because you've given us so much. And you continue, Lord God, to give us everything we need for life and for godliness of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that you will pour out your Spirit now upon us, as I know you've been pouring out your Spirit upon us throughout this whole time. I thank you, Lord God, for those who have prayed for the service. I, I thank you, Father, that, that uh, they have set their hearts in praying for us, Lord, tonight to receive your word and to receive it with, with wisdom and grace and with gladness. But now I pray, Father, that we will go forth from this place girded with prayer as well. For we will face, Lord God, the trials and the temptations and, and the, the, um, the, the spears and the darts, fiery darts of the wicked. But greater are you that is in us than he that is in this world. And for this we give you thanks and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.